Um, we are in the middle of a series called Truth and Art, Truth and Art, and we're taking a look this time at authors and literary works. Um, we've done this before with music, we've done it before with movies, and part of what we're doing in these series is we're starting off with what some people would call general revelation, and uh, that is basically a little theological term, which basically means that you can tell a lot about who God is simply by looking at nature, right? So Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. Uh, you can take a look at art, and you can basically see that whoever the artist is, is created in the image of God. And because they're created in the image of God, by definition, they believe in morality. By definition, they believe in community. By definition, they believe in the dignity of humanity, if that makes sense. And so um, whether it's somebody who uh, claims to be an agnostic or someone who claims to be an existentialist or someone who claims you know, to be um, you know, postmodern, that there's no meaning in life, the reality is that when we look at art, whether it's a movie, whether it's um, a book, whether it's a song, you see that, that morality and right and wrong and that dignity of humanity by being created in the image of God is oozing out throughout their work. They can't help it, right? We can't help but to live in light of the fact that, that we're created in the image of God. And so that's part of what we're doing in the series. And so we started a couple weeks ago by looking at uh, Cormac McCarthy. He wrote a book called The Road, which won the Pulitzer Prize in, I can't remember what, 2006, I think. And uh, in winning the Pulitzer Prize, it's this great story. He, he only has only given one interview in like the last 30 years. It was to Oprah. And in that interview, they asked Oprah, or he asked, Oprah asked him, you know, is this really a love story for your son? And he said, yeah, it's really a love story for my son. And, uh, and he said, it's basically answering the question, you know, would I lay my life down? How far would I go to protect and to save my son? And the answer is all the way. And of course, we took a look at scripture and we see that Jesus did that very same thing, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, that no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And so here's this man who is, at, according to himself anyway, at best an agnostic, saying, I can't help but view my son as, uh, as something more than just the product of evolution, right? In the last week, um, Bob had us take a look at Wendell Berry, if you guys are familiar with who Wendell Berry is. And so Wendell Berry basically wrote a book called Jaber Crow, and in that book he talked about community, and he talked about humility, and he talked about providence. Again, we see that through his literary art that the truth and the reality of humanity, and even the truth and the reality of who God is, works itself out through his art. This week we're going to be looking at the author Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, and uh, her book won the Pulitzer Prize back in 1961. And so we're going to be looking at some of, uh, some of the truths that uh, come out through her work um, now almost 60 years ago. Before we do that, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each of the people that are in this room this morning. I thank you that uh, you have created us. I thank you that you've created us in your image. And so, Father, I thank you that, um, that because we are created in your image, you actually treat us with dignity. Um, you sent your son into this world to become a man in order to know what it feels like uh, to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience. Um, I, I pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to remember that we have been created with that dignity because we're created in your image, and I pray that we would live according to and in light of that truth. Father, at the same time, we admit that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to temptation. We're vulnerable to weakness. We're vulnerable um, to, uh, to any number of different things which threaten to destroy that image of you in us. And so, Father, we come today not in our own strength, not in our own power, not in our own security, not even in our own identity, but we come to you today, Father, um, hiding beneath the shadow of your wing. 
Father, we pray that you would be our strong tower, uh, that Jesus would protect us and keep us safe. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Uh, In his name we pray, amen. So every now and then, um, I will walk over to our bookshelf. We have had, we actually just took it out, we had a bookshelf with probably 500 books on it. And uh, the bookshelf, Krista, my wife, is um, orderly and and great at organizing things, and she had ordered, you know, the books, and, you know, according to author and, and genre and all this kind of stuff, and there was this particular area of the bookshelf, which was basically a bunch of literary works from high school, you know, from when we were both younger, maybe college too, and every now and then, if I had, a, you know, a couple of days where I had a little bit of wiggle room, I'd walk over to that section of books, and I would think, you know what, I haven't read The Grapes of Wrath since I was 14, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm sure it's going to come across a lot different to me as an adult, and I'll pull off the grapes of wrath. Well, I was walking by it one day, it's probably now two and a half, three years ago, and I picked up the book To Kill a Mockingbird, and I thought, you know, I haven't read that book since I was, you know, 15 years old. I'd love to reread it. And so over the course of the next two days, I, you know, sat around the living room and, you know, an extra five minutes here and 20 minutes there before we went to bed at night while maybe somebody was brushing their teeth and getting ready for bed. I would just sort of read through these passages of To Kill a Mockingbird, and I got totally into it. And, uh, and it was interesting, as I you know, sat around the house for that two-day period of time, there would be any number of times where I would just laugh so hard, because if you've ever read To Kill a Mockingbird, it's just fantastic. There would be times where I would cry a little, because I'm kind of a softy, yeah. Um, there were lots of moments where I'd be, hey, Krista, listen to this. You know, you've had those moments in books before where you run across something, and it's so good you want to share it with someone. But To Kill a Mockingbird was written by Harper Lee. And uh, she's now passed away, but it was uh, really published in uh, probably in 1960, again, that won the Pulitzer Prize in 61, but it's set in a place called Maycomb, Alabama, this little southern town, which is fictional, but based probably on her, the real town where she grew up in southern Alabama. And, and it basically is this, uh, this story of this southern town. And in this southern town, there's a man named Tom Robinson, and Tom Robinson has been accused, he's an African-American man, he's been accused of... Uh, of basically coming on to and attempting to have his way with um, a young white lady there in the town. And so uh, she accuses him of some things. He's arrested and tried in this court there in Maycomb, Alabama, which, again, this is actually set in the 30s. And so it's set in a very, very racist era, in a very, very racist place. And, uh, and what you know, happens is that everyone in the town basically realizes he's going to get convicted no matter what. Atticus Finch, who is one of the main characters in the book, Scout's father, Atticus Finch is an attorney, and he agrees to represent Tom Robinson, even though he knows the cost that it's going to be upon him and the cost that it's going to be upon his family. And so uh, he basically you know, represents Tom Robinson, this African-American man in the court of law. And, uh, and in doing so, he proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that, uh, that Mayelle Ewell, this young lady, and her father, Bob Ewell, have conspired uh, to accuse Tom Robinson falsely. And in the process of defending Tom Robinson, uh, the Ewells are kind of publicly shamed, right? And so it, what's interesting is the jury, because it's this very racist town and a very racist time, convicts Tom Robinson, but the reality is everybody's seen who uh, Bob Ewell, the bad guy, and his daughter are. And so Bob Ewell, this evil, bad character in the story, vows revenge upon the judge, vows revenge upon Tom Robinson's wife, vows revenge upon Atticus and the, the, the lawyer and his children, right, Scout and Jim. And so ultimately, this is a story that's, that's sort of set in the middle of that drama in the small southern town in the 30s. It's very, very interesting. 
And, uh, and over the course of reading it, though, I found myself realizing that it was about uh, all sorts of different things. It, it was definitely about uh, Southern life back in the 30s in the Deep South. It was about that. Uh, it was definitely a story about prejudice, right? Not only racial prejudice, but also socioeconomic prejudice. And so that was one of the themes that came out in the book. It, it, one of the themes that it covered was sort of this evolution of childhood morality into adult morality, a scout and Jem, her older brother, uh, grow up in the midst of all of these experiences. It's, it's really about all of these different themes. But ultimately, what I realized as I read it is that what this story was about, it's about morality. It's about ethics. It's about how we ought to live as people in all times and in all places, right? It's about what's good and, and, and right. It's about what's wrong, and it's about what's ugly. It's about all of these things, Right? What's interesting is at uh, the, the funeral of Harper Lee several years ago now, a woman spoke named Dawn Hare, and at her funeral, this is what she had to say about Harper Lee and about her work. And this is a quote. It says this. She said, The story, Anne Harper Lee, is a shining example of the capacity of a lay person to see injustice, speak up, tell the story, and transform the world. She goes on to say, she's a representative for the United Methodist Church, She says, we as United Methodists define our mission as making disciples for Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And so she goes on to say, those were not just words to Nell Harper Lee, that was her legacy. In other words, what Harper Lee made her life all about was making disciples for Jesus Christ and the transformation of the world. In other words, part of what she was about was seeing uh, the morality and the ethics of Christian life come to bear on a broken world. In 1966, Harper Lee wrote a letter to the Richmond, Virginia County School Board. Uh, They had um, basically said that her book wasn't going to be allowed uh, because of some of the content in it, and the content was exactly opposite of what we would have banned it for these days. Uh, They were banning it probably for overly progressive uh, and, you know, uh, ideas of racism. But here's how she responded when they said they were banning the book. They called it immoral literature. And uh, she writes to them and says this, Recently, I've received echoes down this way of the Hanover County School Board's activities, and what I've heard makes me wonder if any of its members can read. All right, she's a little sassy, a little sassy. Surely, it is plain to the simplest intelligence that to kill a mockingbird spells out in words that seldom, of seldom more than two syllables, a code of honor and conduct, Christian in its ethic, that is the heritage of all Southerners, right? She writes this letter and says, hey, you're crazy for banning my book. It's a Christian ethic. It's a Christian morality. It's clear to Harper Lee that To Kill a Mockingbird was more than just uh, a story of life in a small town, right? uh, It was much more than that. It was actually a Christian ethic in narrative form. It's a recommendation of how it is that we should live life, of what's good and what's true and what's beautiful. Now, let me stop here and say this. The core of Christianity is, uh, is always good news, not good advice. The core of Christianity is always good news, not good advice. It's the story of what's been done for you, not the story of what we can do for God, right? That's the gospel. However, Christianity still very clearly offers a way of living as individuals, a way of living as individuals in society. This way of life could very easily be called a biblical ethic or a Christian ethic, a Christian way of life, what's good, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's beautiful, how it is that we should then live. Jesus talks about this, right? Paul talks about this. 
And though we want to primarily talk about what has been done for us in Jesus, we also need to talk about how it is that we should live in this world that God's created. How is it supposed to work best? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 28. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. This is after he's died on the cross and returned, and he's giving them sort of marching orders, a direction for life. He says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. He received that worship because he's God, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, to obey everything I've commanded to you. In other words, Jesus cared very deeply about how it is that we live. In other words, there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. There's a good way to live and there's a bad way to live. There's a wise way to live and there's a foolish way to live. This is consistent you know, Genesis all the way through Revelation. And part of the apostles' job was to take that message not only of who Jesus was and what he had done, but also how it is that life is to be lived uh, in a way to honor God, to glorify him, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So let me call time out here and say this. In our day and age, which is 2016, in our day and age, when you begin talking about obedience or biblical morality or biblical ethics, uh, we find ourselves in a cultural minefield, right? All of a sudden, you better watch out because you're telling people how to live. And, uh, and it, it's possible that even when I began talking about this, that some of you thought in your heads, hold on, wait a minute, right? Who are you to tell me how I should live my life? Now, you're kind of stepping on my toes a little bit. You're, you're overreaching. In fact, post-modernity, which is sort of the, the zeitgeist or the cultural spirit or the philosophical spirit of the age basically says this. It says there are no absolutes at all. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute morality. There's no right way to live at all times and all places with all people. There are no absolutes at all. And in fact, claims of morality or claims of a biblical ethic are, ethic are just an attempt for you to grab power, right? Just an attempt for you to grab power. Uh, Tim Keller addresses this uh, in a, a paper that he wrote called Preaching Morality in an Amoral Age. Keller says this, he says, in the 50s and 60s, the existentialism of Camus and Sartre began to collapse confidence in human reason and progress by teaching that truth and morality were completely relative and individually constructed, right? So it's a construction. There's no such thing as right and wrong, true and false. It's just whatever you construct for your group. He goes on to say, today's postmodernity, also led by French thinkers such as Derrida and Foucault, teaches that truth and morality are socially constructed by groups. And so there's a progression of individual construction, then there's social communal construction of right and wrong. In short, he says, no set of cultural beliefs can claim logical superiority over another set because all such beliefs are motivated by subjective interests. In other words, claims of morality aren't, uh, aren't objective truths, they're actually subjective ways of trying to get your way. In this view, all truths and facts are now in quotation marks. Claims of objective truth are really just a cover-up for a power play, right? They're just a cover-up for a power play. You're just trying to gain power for you as an individual. You're trying to gain power for your group. Those who claim to have a story true for all are really just trying to get power for their group over other groups. Does that make sense? Like any truth claim, it's just a power play. It's just a power grab. That's all it is, right? 
That's what Tim Keller cites. That's what he says in this little article. Let me ask you a question for just a moment, though, and just consider these things. For those of you who have read To Kill a Mockingbird, does it sound like Harper Lee's ethical narrative is a power grab to you? Not not at all, right? The cost is too great. For those of you who know about Martin Luther King and understand that the civil rights movement and his part in the civil rights movement was actually a working out of his Christianity, he wasn't calling for the American culture to be less Christian, he was calling for it to be more Christian. When you look at Martin Luther King, do you see that and think, that's just a power grab? I don't think so. It cost him his life. Right? The cost was too high. When you look at Mother Teresa, right, living her life in Calcutta, India, do you look at it and you go, Pfft, Mother Teresa, good grief. Power hungry, you know, Albanian woman, whatever. For those of you who have read the life of Jesus, does it sound like his life was just a power grab? Like, I'm just trying to get power. You know, 11 of the 12 disciples were martyrs, right? Do you think they were just trying to gain power for themselves? I don't think so. Or rather, does it sound like their distinctly Christian morality, the morality of Jesus, the morality of the disciples, the morality of Mother Teresa, the morality of Martin Luther King, the morality of Harper Lee, does it sound more like their morality was exactly what the world needed to hear because it was true and it was right and it was good and it was beautiful? Is it more likely that that's the case? I would argue that the way of life laid down by Jesus and the way of life followed an example by Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird is the pathway of being fully human. And it was the pathway to living in a flourishing society. There there are all these different themes in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's really rich. It's a beautiful book. Totally recommend it without reservation. There are many themes in To Kill a Mockingbird. Courage, humility, race, justice, integrity, And there's more than that, but we're going to focus on two distinctly Christian themes that come out of To Kill a Mockingbird. The first is that in Christianity, there is an ethic of defending the vulnerable, and there's always an ethic of treating people with dignity because they're created in the image of God. Let's start off with this idea of Christian morality champions human dignity. Now, I'm going to read something that has uh, reference to words that are highly offensive in our culture. I think it's important to read these, however, and to see what the current uh, you know, age 60 years ago was dealing with. And uh, the section that I'm going to read here is a discussion between Scout and Atticus. Scout is uh, Atticus's daughter, and he is a, you know, an example of, um, of Christian morality ultimately in this book, but they're discussing uh, racism and some language that's used in ra- racism. And, and the context is this. Um, he's decided to to take care of and to defend Tom Robinson, who's this African-American man accused of this crime. And as a result, kids at school are making fun of Scout and making fun of Jim. She comes home, tells Atticus, here's how he responds. Scout, said Atticus, in lover is just one of those terms that don't mean anything like snot nose. It's hard to explain. Ignorant, trashy people use it when they think someone's favoring Negroes over and above themselves. It's slipped into usage with some people like ourselves when they want a common, ugly term to label somebody. Scout responds, you aren't really an in-lover then, are you? She asks Atticus. His response, I certainly am, right? Because human beings are created in the image of God. Atticus then scolds Scout about using the N-word despite the fact that it is common, right? Yeah, everybody is using it. When she responds that everybody at school uses the word, Atticus answers her simply, from now on, it'll be everybody less one. Right? It's a great answer. Right? It's a great story. And ultimately, he's saying, and he's saying, look, everyone 
is created in the image of God. Therefore, everyone deserves to be treated, treated with dignity. This isn't just a statement about race and racism, however, right? It is that, but it's, it's actually a piece of a much larger ethic. Atticus also demands treating the bad guys in the story with respect, right? Which also blows Scout's mind. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said, right? Love your enemy as yourself. And he also talks about loving the racist Miss Maudie in the story with respect. He also talks about uh, treating Bob Yule, the bad guy in the story, with respect. The list goes on and on and on. Why in the world would Atticus put forth this confusing ethic to his little daughter? Because everyone, every man and every woman, regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of socioeconomic position, everyone is created in God's image and is therefore to be treated with respect and dignity. Listen to what Genesis 1, 27 says. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is why murder is wrong, because it's destroying the image of God in another person, because all people have dignity. Jesus drives this same point of not committing murder home even deeper. That's what Jesus does as he takes the law and he drives it even deeper. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he's discussing the way we talk to one another, he says this, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, or you idiot, stupid, moron, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying it's not only wrong to hurt someone or harm someone physically, it's wrong to harm someone emotionally and psychologically, right? It's emotional and psychological murder. We have this conversation um, in the context of our home every now and then, right? Comes up in, uh, in discussion there a little bit, but human dignity Treating others with dignity comes up in Jesus' ministry over and over and over again, right? The woman at the well, this woman who'd been married five times and currently was living with some other man, she was, you know, sort of this immoral outcast, and Jesus comes and he treats her with dignity, right? Jesus treats the tax collectors with dignity. They're rebels. They're also outcasts. He comes to them. He treats them with dignity, prostitutes, sinners, Right? Even the way that Jesus treats the Pharisees is with dignity. Treating someone with dignity doesn't mean you always agree with them. In fact, that's not dignified to treat someone as if you agree with them when you really don't. That's dishonest, right? It's actually not, not treating them well enough to treat them in a way that you would disagree with them. He's even hard on the Pharisees, but even that's treating them with dignity, right? Throughout Jesus' ministry, there's this idea of treating people with dignity because they're created in the image of God. I have a friend who has been coaching soccer for a long time. And he's coached his kids' soccer. And so here in Rome, he's coached probably for, I guess, maybe you know, eight to ten years total. And in coaching um, the kids, you know, and basically he's had any number of different kid, uh, teams with a lot of little Hispanic kids on the team. And, and I think he's aware that sometimes in Rome, um, sometimes being Hispanic can kind of put you as sort of an outlier or a little bit of a, you know, an outcast to some degree in our culture. And so it's interesting when he coaches, he always tries to speak Spanish with the parents of the kids he's coaching in order to treat the parents with respect and to defer to the parents in front of the kids. What he's trying to do is he's trying to treat them with dignity. 
He's trying to treat them with respect in a culture, in a world where they don't always get treated with dignity and respect. He's trying to do it in front of their kids. Does that make sense? Because they're created in the image of God. So I would would ask you this question. Don't you want to live in a world where people are treated with dignity and respect, not because we always agree with them, but rather because they're created in the image of God? Don't you want to live in that world? You want it for yourself, for sure. But I would argue that you actually want it for other people, too right? This means champion, championing, championing a world where there is no murder, where there is no slander, and where there is no abuse, right? It means fighting for a world with human dignity. It means championing a world where the poor and the outsiders are treated with as much dignity as the rich and the powerful. Does that make sense? We should treat one another with dignity and respect, but we should treat all men and women with dignity and respect because we're created in the image of God. At Seven Hills Fellowship, I hope and I pray that we would be champions of human dignity. That's exactly what Harper Lee is writing about. It's definitely how Jesus lived his life and conducted himself upon the earth. The second thing we see in this story, uh, to kill a mockingbird that is an example of Christian morality, and again, among many things, is that Christian morality condemns harming the vulnerable right? Christian morality condemns harming the vulnerable. Another way of saying it is that Christian morality affirms protecting the vulnerable. Here's another little section from To Kill a Mockingbird. This one is the discussion between Miss Maudie, who in the book is painted very clearly as somebody who has racist views, but she's discussing Scout, and here's what she has to say. Mockingbirds don't do one thing but make music for us to enjoy. They don't eat up people's gardens, don't nest in corn cribs, They don't do one thing but sing their hearts out for us. That's why it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. In the story, there's this very clear narrative that happens over and over and over again that that it is good and it's right and it's holy and it's noble for the strong to protect the weak, right? For those who are powerful to protect those who are vulnerable. For, For those people who are good to protect the weak. In the story, Atticus defends the vulnerable Tom Robinson, right? He's this African-American man who's been charged of this thing, right? The culture's against them, the jury's against them, the town's against them, and yet Atticus defends the vulnerable Tom Robinson, not because it's the easy thing to do, right? Not because he thinks he's going to win, but rather because it's the right thing to do. Scout and Jim, these are his children, protect their vulnerable father and vulnerable Tom Robinson from the mob. There's this scene where they come, and because they come out there as innocent children, the, the mob disperses because they don't want to look bad in front of these kids, but they protect the vulnerable. There's this great scene where Boo Radley protects the vulnerable children from Bob Yule, right? Jim, Scout's older brother, even protects a roly-poly from a child who threatens to harm it. You know what a roly-poly is? Those little black bugs that rolls up. Like everything, right? Protect the vulnerable. What does Jesus have to say about protecting the vulnerable? turns out a lot so does the Old Testament. Here's what Matthew 18 says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? You want to become strong, become weak. Right? You want to become the greatest, you have to become the most lowly and the most humble. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, right? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, why don't you pick on somebody your own size, right? He comes and he, he wants to defend the vulnerable, right? To fight for the powerless, right? It's part of what we're called to do then as Christians is to protect the vulnerable, right? We see it throughout Scripture. It's the widows, it's the orphans, it's the alien, it's the stranger, it's the poor, it's the outcast. I would argue that it's unborn children, right? It's the vulnerable, right? That we're called to protect the vulnerable. Don't you want to live in a world where those who are vulnerable are protected? Right? You may not feel vulnerable now, but just wait till you're older, right? I didn't feel vulnerable when I was 21. I feel a little more vulnerable at 44, right? And I think I'm going to feel way more vulnerable at 64 and 74. Don't you want to live in a world where the vulnerable are protected? Don't you want to live in a world where your son or daughter can walk to school in safety? Don't you want to live in a world where they can play at recess without being made fun of? Like, don't you want that world for your children? Don't you want to live in a world where as a woman you can feel safe going uh, for a walk alone at night? Don't we want to live in that world, right, where the vulnerable are protected? As husbands and wives in relationship, don't you want to be able to be vulnerable and yet be safe in relationship with one another, right? That's what, one of the things we long for as human beings is to be naked and unashamed, right? To, to, be, to be vulnerable and yet still safe in relationship. At Seven Hills Fellowship, we should be people who fight to protect the powerless, right? We should be people who fight to protect the vulnerable, Today, as you look around this room, you see these stations with bread and wine, right? Bread and grape juice. Bread and grape juice on the left, bread and wine on the right. And in the Lord's Supper, what you need to understand is that the Lord's Supper is a reminder both of our vulnerability and our dignity, right? It's a reminder of our vulnerability and our dignity. It's a reminder of our vulnerability because in it, we remember our weakness and our failure and our frailty, a failure to honor and obey God. Joel led us through a confession today. If we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with God, we have to be very honest about the fact that we have failed to honor and obey God. We honor ourselves like crazy, but we failed to honor and obey God. We failed to treat others with dignity and respect. We failed to be truthful, right? We failed to be chaste, right? I, I would assume that in a crowd this large, there are plenty of people for whom that just rings true for you. We failed to be truthful, to be chaste. We failed to be kind. We failed to be loving. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that we're vulnerable to temptation, but it also reminds us that Jesus loved us enough to protect us from the consequences of our sin by giving his life that we might live. Jesus came to protect the vulnerable, which means he came to protect you and me, right, in this meal called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also a reminder of our dignity because in it we're reminded by God how much he loves us, right? When God created the world, he called each day good, but it wasn't until he'd created the man and the woman on the sixth day that he declared the creation to be very good. It's great because I've created someone in my image. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that we were, a reminder that we were created uniquely in the image of God and that somehow in God's economy, we were worth the cost of redemption, right? The life, the death, and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus. The Lord's Supper reminds you today of your weakness, your vulnerability, but it also reminds you of how much 
you are loved and worth to God. Does that make sense? Ultimately, however, the Lord's Supper is a message of forgiveness. It's a message of God saying, it's not about your righteousness or your absence of righteousness. This Lord's Supper is about reminding you that you've been forgiven because of my son Jesus. So your ability to stand before God doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus, right? Your ability to stand before God isn't because you're beautiful. Your ability to stand before God is because he is making you beautiful because he loves you as his daughter and his son. This meal today of bread and wine is a message of forgiveness. It's a message of restoration. It's a message of adoption, but it's also a message that is proclaimed only for those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, right? It's a family meal for people in the family of God. And so if you haven't come to that point yet of trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, and if you know it, I would simply ask you sit back and you watch the people of God as they receive grace and they receive mercy and as they receive a declaration of not guilty and forgiven. I'm going to read the words of institution and ask you that you take a moment and think about the depth of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and the forgiveness that is offered to you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would be in this room right now in an unmistakable fashion. And Father, that um, your spirit would be at work in us, enabling us to see our sin, our brokenness, our frailty, our vulnerability. Father, I pray that your spirit would also be at work in us as we see our brokenness, um, to also see the grace and the mercy uh, that you willingly and powerfully offer to us in your son Jesus. Father, I pray that we would uh, receive this bread and wine today um, and that it wouldn't just be an intellectual uh, assent to the gospel, but rather that you would nourish us and strengthen us, uh, that you would in a supernatural way be present in this meal, um, allowing us uh, to miraculously believe that we are forgiven, that we are made right, that we are made clean, uh, that we are loved and that we are beautiful because you're making us beautiful and have made us beautiful through your son. It's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen.